0: I'm Courtney Smith, and I'm Elise Sharp, and we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's
1: plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms.
0: We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today.
1: All while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone?
0: Hi listeners, it's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, You might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've said that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe patreon will help us achieve we've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis our bonus content so far includes shakespeare stuff we loved this month posts where we share the shakespeare related products we are obsessing over not only that but we already launched bonus episodes One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and early modern trans studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening, and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, on to the episode. All right. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you doing today? I'm
1: doing very well. Thank you. How about you?
0: I'm doing well as well. I keep saying that. I'm doing well as well. I like it. I
1: know. It's maybe all's well that ends well. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could we could say.
0: Mm-hmm. All or right. all's
1: well that starts well. All's
0: well that starts well. We are the new Shakespeare.
1: Mm-hmm. So Let's get shirts.
0: Pl- oh, my gosh. Merch. That sounds good to me. So before we sell merch, let's talk about this topic that we are bringing to the episode. I'm really excited to talk about our next topic. We are, well, we started out wanting to do comedic tropes, and we definitely have comedic tropes, but we have some other tropes as well that we're going to talk about in Twelfth Night. So what is a trope, Elise?
1: According to merriam trope is a common or overused theme or device.
0: And that's what we're going to talk about in Twelfth Night. And I think a lot of people associate Shakespeare as being the foundation of a lot of, I mean, people who know better don't do this, but there's a lot of assumption that Shakespeare started everything. And Mm -hmm. um, he's definitely influenced a lot of things. So a lot of the things you're going to see in Twelfth Night do show up in other parts of Western culture. But he also was taking tropes from other places as well.
1: That's right. He was heavily influenced by other art that was happening prior to him. We've talked about the... English traditions of theater that predated Shakespeare. But there's also a lot of influence from the Roman plays of Plautus and Terence. Mm. And what you need to know about comedy is that the same stuff has always been funny. It's just continued to evolve over time and it shows up in different ways. So you'll probably hear things today that we talk about that sound like something you could see in a sitcom on TV today.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then if you go back predating Shakespeare, you'll probably find those things in things that predate Shakespeare as well. And some tropes in Twelfth Night, I'm just gonna rattle off a few of them. Uh, one of them is the actually-that's-my-assistant trope. We see Olivia put a veil over her face and pretend to be one of her maidservants to greet Cesario. The alcoholic hick, so Toby Belch, he is a trope. You've got the break the haughty trope, which is the Mariah, Festi and those rabble-rousers who take on the arrogant Malvolio. They want to knock him down a peg. So... That's the general gist of what we mean when we're saying tropes. Now, Elise, you have a lot of historicism that you found this week, right?
1: Yes, I'm bringing a lot of historicism to today's episode. So specifically, uh, when talking about tropes in Twelfth Night, we can look towards a specific play that it is believed Shakespeare took the plot of Twelfth Night from. We've talked about it previously on the pod. It's called Glianganati. It is an Italian play from the mid-1500s. It was wildly popular. And according to L.G. Salinger's article, The Design of Twelfth Night, four essential characters are common to Glingonati and Twelfth Night. Mm. There's a lover, a heroine in his service disguised as a page, her twin brother, who at first has disappeared, and a second heroine. The basic elements common to the plot are the heroine's secret love for her master, her employment as a go-between, leading to the complication of a cross-wooing, and a final solution by means of the unforeseen arrival of the missing twin. Hmm. So uh, I want to dive a little bit more into Gliangonati and how we can see the characters from that play show up beyond just the basic plot and the mm-hmm. tropes that they themselves are based on Ooh. from Commedia dell'Arte. All right. So Gliangonati is the Deceived Ones, or the Deceived in English. It's a 1531 comedy of intrigue. Comedy of intrigue means that the dramatic action drives the comedy instead of characters making the comedy happen. So So it's probably less uh, slapstick than A little bit more like a sitcom than like like The Office. The Mm -hmm. Office is a more modern comedy or like Arrested Development Mm -hmm. is more of a like character base. The comedy's coming because these people are fallible and we watch them make mistakes versus like friends. A more like formulaic with plots. We're putting these characters in situations, and the situations are causing the comedy.
0: I see. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Commedia dell'arte has a usual 10 main types of characters in its scenarios, and they use symmetrical pairs of characters. So we have two elderly men, who are also called the Vecchi, or Vecchio as a singular, two sets of lovers, two Zani, which are witty servants... A servetta or soubrette, which is a maid servant, a soldier, and then some extras.
0: Okay. For the listeners, Commedia is the style where like they've got the masks on. So just so yeah. you can see exactly what we're talking, we're talking about, when we're talking about these stock characters, they put on a certain type of mask and that lets the audience know who they are.
1: And to go a little bit more into it, all of the characters are kind of variations on themes. So Mm -hmm. the old men, they are victims to the seven deadly sins, like they are usually kind of a little bit more in the villain category, or they are an obstacle for the lovers to overcome. Got it. The lovers, they are always true, pure love, but there's some sort of obstacle that they have to overcome. And a lot of times there's a disguise or something involved that the lovers have to undertake to achieve their love. And they are helped by the Zani, the servants. One Zani is usually clever. The other is not particularly smart. And then the maidservant usually serves one of the female lovers. And a soldier is around... Um,
0: <laughs> doing soldier things. Drives,
1: dr- doing soldier things. Uh-huh. Might drive a uh, part of the plot forward. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And not all characters are masked, but the masks are very recognizable. Oh, that's that character. It's a very physical form of comedy as well. So, the actors would put on the mask and then also take on physical stances. So, certain characters walked a certain way, and the audience could tell from afar who they were.
0: I remember doing that in um, a workshop. It's really fun, it's a full body experience if you're. Working with Commedia Delarte.
1: Yeah. So this is what I've kind of pieced together from my knowledge of Commedia. But let me describe some roles to you and see what you think. If you can name the stock character I'm thinking of. Yeah. So first, I have a character who's, I'm going to say it's a vecchio. Mm-hmm. One of the elderly men. Uh-huh. Main vice is egotism and unfounded pride. Malvolio. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) exactly. So that is Dottore, who is usually the doctor or a professor. So somebody who is learned, maybe Mm -hmm. a lawyer, but is really actually bad at their job and has a lot of unfounded pride in their work. Mm -hmm. That's Malvolio. There's also another stock character named Pasquirello, who can be a braggart, but kind of a coward at the end of the day, but one of... Pasquarello's main traits is some decorative garters on his breeches. And I was like,
0: oh, ah, huh. uh-huh. you mean there like might be those a little yellow... sprinkling of that? Yeah, those yellow stockings with cross gartering. Is that mm-hmm. the one? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I also wouldn't be surprised if Shakespeare combined different stock characters while creating Malvolio, because we see him do that in plays, mm-hmm. taking different people right. from history or society or stories and. Deciding to turn three characters yeah. into one, so.
1: Yeah. As we've talked about, the cross guarders were just like an out of fashion yeah thing that we could joke about. Yeah. <laughs> so I also want to talk about Capitano, who mm-hmm. I think in this is one of the elderly men. Capitano can be an old man, a lover, or a servant, depending on the scenario. But he's basically a big braggart, despite being a coward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Sir Andrew Agui-Cheek.
1: Because we also have the soldier. So if it wasn't ah. Sir Andrew.
0: So if it's not Sir Andrew, a coward who is also a braggart. Or just or
1: basically a big braggart.
0: A big braggart. I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking of Orsino. No, not Orsino.
1: He would be a lover, He'd though. He'd be a lover,
0: though. Let me think. Hold on. Give me one moment to think. Would it be Sir Toby? I think so. Yeah. He's a braggart, but so, he's a coward. He's old.
1: I think the big difference, when I was drawing these lines, I was like, because of age, purely, Yeah, Toby has to live somewhere in the Vecchio land.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Sir Toby, I mean, he is a braggart, so... hmm Yeah. He's, he's a
1: braggart. I think, again, he's a Capitano, so he can kind of be all three
0: okay. of these,
1: too, because he's also a clown. He ends up marrying... Well, the Servetta, the maidservant. Uh-huh. The most famous one, Columbina, is usually paired in love matches with one of the other clowns.
0: So that's Mariah.
1: Mariah with Toby, with right? With Toby, yeah. So yeah, he's. I think he's somewhere in between. We mm-hmm. don't really have like two villain men, but we have Sir Toby, who's a bit of an obstacle for Olivia. He is,
0: yeah. He's also an obstacle for um, Viola Cesario. Yeah. I'm thinking of like the dual scene.
1: Yeah, exactly, which he ends up running away from. That's where I was kind of like, okay, Mm -hmm. coward. I see that. And then we have our two sets of two lovers.
0: Orsino. Olivia Sebastian,
1: Viola Orsino. Yeah. And then we have two witty servants, one of whom is very clever, and the other is not particularly smart. So these servants are usually in the employ of the enamorati, the lovers. We have an obvious clown.
0: Who's his profession, Festy.
1: Festy. I think he is most similar to the Commedia character of Brigella. Brigella is shrewd, greedy. Festy always is pretty money-driven. Give
0: me money. Money, please. Give me money.
1: Plays tricks and is an expert musician.
0: Yeah, he sings a pretty Mm -hmm. tune.
1: And then there is Azani, uh, who's one of the more famous ones, Arlecchino, the Harlequin, who just basically makes a nuisance of himself. Antonio gets into a duel.
0: He sticks his nose where it doesn't belong.
1: Isn't where he should be. He isn't follows... there to help his master when his master really needs him? hmm
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he follows, he follows Sebastian without Sebastian actually wanting him to accompany him.
1: Yeah. And the added bonus of, oh, yeah, I'm also a pirate. And, like, if I'm seen in Illyria, it's going to cause problems. Just a nuisance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So those are the stock characters that I see popping up in Twelfth Night. Yeah. So in addition to these character traits that he's taking from Commedia dell'Arte and Glianginati, Shakespeare was also influenced by the actors who he worked with. Mm. So in Shakespeare, we have a great tradition of fools. And fools in England started off as a practice that was in feudal England. They Mm -hmm. were sometimes members of a feudal lord's household. And it was a long, passed down tradition. So you learned from a master in comedy how to be a comedian. And we can see the differences in Shakespeare's Fools on a timeline almost, based on the actors who were playing them and who were involved in the company. So Neat. in the early plays, we usually get a pair of fools who arrive together together, and are a bit separate from the rest of the action of the play. And on the exterior, they seem identical, but they have their own personalities. One is very talkative, easygoing, occasionally gets worked up, believes himself to be wise, and will lecture and patronize their companion. I'm thinking dogberry. Second... Sorry, I
0: just wanted to interject. I'm thinking dogberry 100%.
1: Exactly. You hit the nail on the <laughs> head with this. Woo. Um, <laughs> the second is more simple-minded and just kind of like in supportive awe of their friend. Mm-hmm. So, we can see this as, in addition to Dogberry and Verges and Muchadu, this duo is seen in Launce and Speed in Two Gentlemen of Verona, Dull and Costard in Love's Labour's Lost, Lancelot Gobbo and his father in Merchant of Venice, Peter and the leader of the Minstrels in Romeo and Juliet, and, last but not least, the two gravediggers in Hamlet. Yes. After the gravediggers, this trope disappears. Hmm. Shakespeare does not write this kind of clown anymore. It's very similar to this trope of the simple country bumpkin who comes in and just is kind of wise but kind of goofy. According to Austin K. Gray in his article, Robert Armin the Fool, it's as native to English comedy and as old a tradition as the roguish valet of French and Italian comedy. So like your Tartuffe. Yeah, I was thinking. Moliere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Moliere. Or... Arlecchino, back to the commedia, right? Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm.
1: The trope comes from the village idiot or the wandering ballad singer and the household jester in feudal society, like I just said a few minutes ago. Uh And there were two actors in Shakespeare's company who played these parts, Will Kemp and Dick Cowley. We know that these actors played these parts because there's actually some lucky stage directions in Romeo and Juliet. And... Much Ado About Nothing. Mm. So we know that Will Kemp played Peter in Romeo and Juliet. And from Much Ado About Nothing, we know these two actors played Dogberry and Virgis. And from that, we can extrapolate that they were the others in this trope. And that right. Will was always the Dogberry, Peter, first grave digger, And that Dick Cowley was always his sidekick. Right. Not a lot else is known about Cowley other than he lived near the theater. And, oh, that's a uh, theater with a capital T.
0: The first, so the public building, theater. The
1: theater, yes, and died in 1619.
0: Hmm.
1: However, Will Kemp was the most famous clown actor of the time.
0: I think I've seen—I don't know if it was a wood carving or like a wood graving of him, but mm-hmm. I have seen like images of Will Kemp playing his comedy parts in books. Yeah, so
1: he was the Will Ferrell of Shakespeare's time. Hmm. Like big deal. Since the gravediggers were the last time these two would appear together in the Chamberlain's Men, scholars think there may be a personal tribute to Kemp in Hamlet's remarks about York's skull, calling him a man of infinite jest while, comically, Kemp would be standing in a grave of his own making.
0: Oh. Right? Yeah. Huh.
1: Also, like, what a lovely, like, Poetic. farewell yeah. to your company's, like, star. Mm-hmm. Think about SNL when they have their when last... somebody's last show and just how it's like, let's bring out all their characters. Let's have a moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hamlet's speech about York's Skull could very well be the company's way of giving a tribute to, to Kemp. Kemp. I really mm-hmm. like
0: that. I'm hoping that that's true.
1: Yeah. And then uh, Cowley appears probably once more as William and as you like it, because William is the last time we see the kind of country bumpkin character. And that's also the play where we meet a new type of clown in Touchstone. Yeah. So Touchstone is this courtier clown. He is incredibly funny. So Jayquees gives this excellent monologue to really set up this incredible fool. And that's probably well-deserved because the actor who played Touchstone and Festy and Twelfth Night and Lear's Fool was Robert Armin, who was already a bit of a rising star on the comedy scene. Mm -hmm. He wrote comedies himself and played a character named Touch, a witty servant in his play The History of the Two Maids of Moorclack.
0: Uh He
1: also wrote a book called Fool Upon Fool that described different types of fools. It's uh, honestly kind of offensive now to read because it's a lot of like fascinations with people who were...
0: Disabled...
1: Disabled. That's what I was, yeah. It's a lot of fascination with people with disabilities and a little bit of a sideshow thing. So Mm. it's very offensive to read now. But he wrote a book called Fool Upon Fool that described different types of fools. And it's likely that Shakespeare named Touchstone after touch because Robert Armin's play was performed before, predates As You Like It. This fool type that we see is a household gesture, a philosopher, has a lot of wit and Armin was also incredibly talented at singing, which we also see in Festy. Yeah. He played these fools in addition to probably also playing the cobbler in Julius Caesar and the porter in Macbeth and would have taken the role of Dogberry
0: when they revised it. Wow. We talk about William Shakespeare, the playwright, you know, and then Mm -hmm. the actors who brought those characters to life, who influenced the characters that Shakespeare wrote. We don't know who they are as a grand, you know, Western civilization. As well as
1: we know Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Like, we can look back and, you know, find wood carvings of Will Kemp or we have, like, Robert Armin's mm-hmm. books. We know just, like, from chance stage directions about things, but, mm-hmm. like, no reviews. Yeah. Which is know. funny
0: because if we're going to go with the, you know, Will Ferrell, um, you know, Kings of Comedy for today – I mean, when you think about the movies that he's a part of, you don't think about the person who wrote the lines. You think about how much Will Ferrell inspired that character and brought that character to life. So mm-hmm. when we're looking at a Shakespeare play, and this is not like I think much more sh- about
1: Adam <laughs> McKay essentially, yeah, than we do. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, wow.
1: So like, this would be like thinking more about Adam McKay, who is a star in his own right, but like him being more of a household name. 400 years from now mm-hmm. than Will Ferrell, essentially. It's something that, like, I really grasp onto. I'm going to get, like, a little bit away from comedy for a second, but please mm-hmm. indulge me. All right. When we think about the female characters in Shakespeare, there is sometimes a tendency to be like, oh, well, Shakespeare wrote weak women. And I don't <laughs> think he did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, he was writing for a group of men First of all, mm-hmm. why would sexism even come into it other than like, oh, how do we portray like femininity? Right. But he's still under pressure from these people that he has to go to work with every single day to write them good roles mm-hmm. and roles that they want to play. They want I, to come to work and do. Yeah. So, and they're a
0: company. So they're they're doing the next play and the next play and the next play. And if you have good actors, you want to keep them happy.
1: You want to keep them happy. And you want to give what they're good at and what they enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. So you have Robert Ehrman, who's playing all these witty fools, but you also maybe have, you also have an actor who really loves to play kind of older women who are kind of evil, like Lady M or uh, Volumnia in Mm -hmm. uh, Coriolanus. Coriolanus. Women who have a certain power in their own right. And then you've got, you know, maybe these two who are like your kind of young lover types who you can have be, Rosalind and Celia in As You Like It and then the Olivia and Viola in mm-hmm. Twelfth Night. Yeah. It's fascinating to learn a little bit more about how the actors who played these roles really influenced the, the creation, of-
0: yeah, the creations I mean, the of, creation these of these plays and yeah. the roles. Mhm.
1: Yeah, that it changed based on the makeup of the company. Specifically fools, specifically right. comedic roles were so dependent on the actors that were being written for. Yeah. But uh, to change topics entirely and talk about some other tropes, I've been in the historicism Uh for a bit. Yeah. Why don't we switch gears a little bit and talk about some other tropes that are definitely distinct to Twelfth Night. Yeah.
0: Let's do it. I am also going to go into historicism, but I'm going to link this more to the play itself. So we're going to be heading on back to the play Twelfth Night. And the first uh, trope that I want to talk about is the missing father trope. Mm -hmm. There is the appearance or the conversation about missing fathers. That book ends Twelfth Night. So we see at the beginning of the play, we learn that Olivia has lost a father. And we also learn that Viola has lost a father. And then at the end of the play, Sebastian and Viola recognize each other and have this conversation where they recognize that they're related because of discussing their father. In early modern England, early modern English children were more likely to lose the male than the female parent. We see both of these absent parents be male, and that's from this acknowledgement that the paternal absent was more active, perhaps uh, in part because from a pragmatic standpoint, the absent father was simply more important to 16th century children than an absent mother was, which...
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess like all of your family property and land... Mm -hmm.
0: Belong to your dad. Yeah. And even and even when Olivia is asking Viola about her her identity, she says, What is your parentage? The question's not who but what. So the father is quite important. It like sets up your identity in a lot of ways. Uh Viola's disguise, right. yeah. Viola's disguise makes her a mirror image of her brother, and her brother, at least nominally, is a mirror of their father. At the end of the play, Viola says this one. Sebastian was my father, such as Sebastian was my brother too, so went he quite to his watery tomb. And this implies that the father and the son were alike in more than name, and Viola's likeness to her brother is therefore likeness to her father. And in this play, the absence of the father contributes quite greatly to the twinning of Sebastian and Viola themselves. Uh, Missing fathers leads to mourning, and that's another trope in Twelfth Night. Or it's just generally an important plot point. But uh, Twelfth Night's obsessive emphasis on the death of the fathers uh, emerges from a debate that was going on in England about how to grieve and how to engage in grief and what's an appropriate way to grieve. Oh, that's
1: interesting because we have, like, two missing fathers in this play.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So the conflict over mourning in Illyria, it looks like a conflict over how to mourn in England.
1: I also think that's interesting, like, as you've been talking, I've also been, like, thinking through the comedies in general, and there's so many that in some way have... Death and grieving as a plot point. Mm-hmm. Love's Labour's Lost ends with news of a parent's death. And Much Ado About Nothing, Hero's Funeral, and, like, the idea of Claudio needing to grieve. So it is, like, something that happens through a lot of comedy. And then, like, As You Like It, part of the escape to the Forest of Arden is to reunite with a missing father.
0: Yeah, it... I'm like... Yeah, for being huh. for being a comedy... Many of the plot points actually revolve around missing absent parents, parent death. And then the younger, the children are then in a position where they have to grieve their parents. And in Twelfth Night, Olivia and Viola grieve in two different ways. And uh, Olivia and Viola's grief, historians can point to this as a debate going on in England about what is the proper way to grieve. At the time, there was Protestant hostility to traditional Catholic forms of mourning. Mourning, as a Catholic, it's filled with more extravagant displays versus the Protestant version of mourning, which is keep it all in, you don't let it out. Mm -hmm. It's uh, offensive to start crying in public, especially at a time when England was no longer Catholic, but you did have remnants of people secretly practicing Catholicism. Protestantism is the new religion, And that's the religion that's supposed to dictate how you deal with these traumatic events in your life. So I want to point to the difference between Catholic grief and Protestant grief and how we see both Mm -hmm. Olivia and Viola display different ways of grieving and mourning and which style of grief each woman is uh, following. So um, Olivia's water rather than tears for her dead suggests the holy water that's sprinkled by priests, which would have been a, a Catholic custom. Uh, oh, Festi and okay. Olivia have this banter about Good Madonna and Good Fool over the death of her brother, and that and b- that bit reveals like the Catholic burial and prayer versus the Protestant service.
1: Yeah, the Madonna is a Catholic mm-hmm. image.
0: Yeah, and during this time period, the Protestants did not believe that prayer would actually benefit your dead, so it was more like put them in the ground, move on. No need to pray for them. Don't mourn for them for quite as long. And Olivia has more of a uh, wants to prolong the grief, and Festi's pointing out the ridiculousness of this. He's already in heaven, so get over it.
1: Going back to our conversation about place for the court, like how you present different things that are going on
0: mm-hmm.
1: in society at court. So alongside this debate about everything the Puritans are doing, there's also Catholics and Protestants, and mm-hmm. like. Yeah, Olivia, with the veil and wearing black for six months to a year, Mm -hmm. is very much, like, Catholic, Mm -hmm. right? Very, like,
0: open display of the grief that she's enduring. So then Olivia, with the black, is also seen as a Catholic cloistress. Mm -hmm. Olivia's mourning her father and brother is a representation of Catholic mourning. And then on the flip side... Viola's mourning over her brother is a uh, Protestant representation of that. We see in her Patience on a Monument speech, this speech implies that grief is noble and mourning is embarrassing. So she takes the opposite approach of Olivia, who's open about her mourning and shows it openly to those around her. Right. Viola chooses to be more noble about her grief. and uh, More stoic. Yeah, exactly. Very stoic. So Many early moderns, they saw open grieving as debasement. And there's an example where, upon the death of the Duchess of Suffolk's two sons, a man named Thomas Wilson, he warned this Duchess that passionate mourning was easily attractive to those of low position, to uh, women commonly rather than men, rude people rather than godly folk, the unlearned rather than the learned, the foolish folk sooner than wise men, and children rather than young men. So Viola... As Cesario practices restrained grief, Protestant practices of grief.
1: That's such an interesting, like, other layer to put into this comedy. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that at the time there was this proper, correct way to grieve. You know, but we see it now, too. Like, people who are openly sad about stuff, sometimes it's like, just get over it. Just move on. Like, you can't grieve forever. And we see that in Twelfth Night, too. The two opposing ways that you grieve. Like, a Catholic grieving where this you have prolonged burials or you have, like, the burials and prayer is important. Prayer means something to the deceased and to the Protestant, which is, like, barium.
1: Bury barium. Bury yeah. And it gives so much more weight. Festy's not just bantering. He's presenting this actual argument mm-hmm. that is happening on the streets of London.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, too, going back, like, you mentioned all the other plays that have grief and, like, loss and mourning over a parent. I want to go back and look at those ones as well and be like, okay, so is this the Catholic grief? Is this the Catholic mourning? Is this the Protestant grief? Is this the Protestant mourning? And what does that say about the characters in a very Protestant England, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. what would the audience of the time been thinking watching Olivia openly grieve?
1: It might be very comic. hmm Yeah. Like something to laugh at because it's just like, we don't do that anymore. Look how silly this looks. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's a trope that... um has more layers from the history of the time than I thought that it would.
1: The, I, I don't think I've ever seen, like, an audience laugh at Olivia being,
0: you know... Uh, visibly in, upset about death.
1: About death. I've seen it get a laugh when uh, she has, you know, a bunch of handmaidens who are also veiled mm-hmm. because she's veiling herself. It gets a laugh on, like, which one is the lady of the house. Yes. Yeah. and um, it's
0: more of a mistaken identity laugh yeah. than it is, you know...
1: Then it is a, oh my, this woman's...
0: She's being so extra. She's being so extra about the death of her, you know, of her family Mm -hmm. member. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And uh, that actually leads me to another trope in this play, the Malvolio plot, the prank plot. How did early modern audiences respond to the prank? Because it's a comedy. It's very funny. And... I actually found this article by Alison P. Hobgood called 12th Night's Notorious Abuse of Malvolio, Shame, Humorality, and Early Modern Spectatorship. And she writes about the audience's reactions during Shakespeare's time because being an audience member of Shakespeare's Globe is very different than being an audience member of today's Globe or any other theater. It was a very different experience. We talked about that before where it's more like a baseball game Mm -hmm. and there's clues that It's more of a plea to vindicate Malvolio, and that comes from this idea that, you know, watching a play would have been different at that time period. And Alison P. Hopgood starts by going back to that John Manningham's diary of the 1602 performance, and there's a bit that he wrote saying, a good practice in it to make the steward believe his lady widow was in love with him. He's, you know, talking about what the plot was. And then, in addition to the review, he included an epigram written in Latin, And the epigram can be read in two different ways, depending on a translation of one of the words within this Latin epigram. So one of the translations is, those evils which are suffered along with others are easier, or those evils we suffer in the presence of many appear still more foolish. So there's ambiguity. It brings about this question if there is more or less sympathy or compassion found in Malvolio's public humiliation as an audience member of the early modern era. Uh, And it's important to remember, too, like that early modern bodies were very different from our own. This is a time period where they were pre-Cartesian, so they weren't thinking about individuality and they weren't thinking about self and existence in the same way that we think about it now. And they were also driven by the idea of the humoral states, the humoral nature of people. So an audience back then might have viewed Malvolio's humiliation differently than we would today. Malvolio's shame starts to take place in the letter scene, and as his imagination starts to take over him and he adopts um, the humoral state, the spectators on and off stage witness his innermost thoughts and his humoral anxieties. Throughout Malvolio's daydream, early modern audiences become more attuned to the symptoms of Malvolio's critical condition. He, like, has a staged puritanical façade. In this mm. moment, this restrained, choleric steward starts to show pieces of being unrestrained and uncontrollable, so sanguine. So right. he stops performing this choleric steward and is revealed as a uncontrollable, sanguine character. And the audience sees that he is not who he seems to be. Wow. Shakespeare's audience members were very in the know of who his character was. As an early modern audience member, because you're so in tune with the humors and what those mean, you're able to look at him mm-hmm. and go, hold on, this guy's supposed to be choleric. That's not true. He's actually sanguine. And this leads to, you know, his tragic fall.
1: So Shakespeare's audience would have been able to suss out that he was sussed. Yes. That like yeah. something was up with Malvolio. Mm-hmm. And it was, was like, mm, mm-hmm. sir, you are not who you say you are. Mm-hmm. So there was humor in that, too, beyond just, like, the
0: prank. Exactly. Yeah, you have the prank, which is funny, and then on top of that, you have them being, like, you were pretending to be someone else, you know, like, you are...
1: Or just, like, that idea of, like, this guy who's supposed to be super staid and, like, mm-hmm. buttoned up, mm-hmm. all of a sudden being, like, super lecherous. Mm-hmm. There's great comedy in that. It's like, uh, I'm trying to, like, compare characters, like... In- well, in like modern,
0: I'm not I'm not finding a good modern equivalent, but I'm thinking of how audience members would have viewed Falstaff, you know, mm-hmm. how his comedy is different than you know other comedies, and like yeah. comedy is based on like different characters fit into different categories based on their uh, humoral state and what the audience knows about their humoral state based on the knowledge at the time.
1: And it's so it's <sighs> so interesting too because I think so often in modern productions I've seen just Malvolio played as, like, Eeyore, Mm -hmm. essentially, like, choleric, sad sack, Mm -hmm. and to be like, no, actually, there's a lot of, like, hinting towards that, like, he's play-acting at that and he's actually sanguine means that, like, there's this, like, fantastic turn that an actor can make to playing a completely different kind of character. Mm -hmm. To think of Malvolio as being more of a Falstaff is super interesting to me. I
0: mean... People today are like, oh, he's you know a Puritan. He's a representation of Puritan, the Puritan movement, and that's also mm-hmm. very possible. As an actor, though, like, how would you go about deciding? Like, hey, I'm starting this out like I'm a Sam character pretending to be choleric for my opportunism.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, what does like in reading the letter? Where does that transformation start? It makes that joke, the C U T joke, and thus makes she her great peas. Is he commenting on that? Right. Like, he's commenting on the letter. Like, is that where he's showing this sort of very sanguine, sex-obsessed side of himself?
0: Yeah. This is a lustful moment where Mariah, who also would have been familiar with the uh, humors because she lived during this time, writes a letter with language that talks about C-U-T. And... It, yeah. hmm Yeah. And so in the final scene, Malvolio attempts to shame his beguilers by exposing their sportful malice and by forcibly requiring them to recognize their accountability. And in this scene, early modern playgoers might have engaged in what American scholars call an active theater experience, which is creating a meaning for a line or action that's not intended by the producers. So if you think about the early modern stage experience out in the open, they might have been playing more to this Riley audience that was really engaged in what was going on. And this suggests that Malvolio might have manipulated his shame to become both the plaintiff and the judge of his own cause, playing to the receptions of an early modern audience. An early modern audience for Malvolio might have become an ally for him. Hobgood argues that Malvolio is staging his shame to testify to the abuses of his body. The act of performing a shame to moral body might serve as redemption of bodily regulation. But the trouble is that early modern spectators already know Mabolio's humoral temper. And when he attempts to perform, the spectators are not likely to believe his act. So in performance, this could be more of a moment where he's trying to plead to the audience to appeal to him and get on his side as the people who have hurt him are on stage, you know, behind him. Um,
1: yeah. And 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 the audience is probably like, No, Mm -hmm. you're a fake and a phony, and you're a ridiculous man. You get what you deserve.
0: Mm -hmm. Hobgood also argues that Malvolio's plea would force early modern audiences to do two things. One, that they stood by idly and laughed as he was mocked and tortured. And the second is early modern playgoers regarded Malvolio's faulty body as a mirror for their own in a time when the four humors is your, you know, your temper... The quality of your body, your mental state, your emotional state, the act of vindicating Malvolio in a theatrical experience would betray their own hopes or vindication in real life. Mm-hmm. This was a much more engaging part of the play for the audience than maybe we would see it now.
1: Almost like a, hey, decide Malvolio's fate, yeah. by like your reaction mm-hmm. a little bit.
0: Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, early modern public theater, the audiences didn't sit in a theater and just look at the, you know, proscenium Mm -hmm. quietly and try to catch every word so um, audiences were they'd be
1: booing or cheering they would be invited to
0: like witness it fully they could act out or react to Melville's shame or do nothing at all and even in in that time period that would have been an action you know inaction was an action Mm -hmm. in a theater experience where you were allowed to be participatory in in some form right Mm -hmm. and that's that that's
1: that's so cool (laughs) also it's probably a great joke at this time where you have these Puritans who are so anti-sex trying to shut down the theaters, trying to shut down the brothels to basically say in a play like, nope, here's one who's just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Just this is all just a facade. This is all just an act. Yeah, there's great comedy in somebody who's pretending to be pious, who reveals themselves to not be like Mr. Collins mm-hmm. in that. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, who's like, you're supposed to be this holy man, but you definitely have so much pride. Mm -hmm. For me, this is like, you know, when we talked about like, oh, Malvoli was so many people's like, favorite character. Inside, I was like, really? Mm -hmm. How? And now it's like, there's a lot of comedic irony of someone who is supposed to be one way, is not, is really like as far opposite from what they pretend to be as possible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's tons of comedy to it. And I mean, a lot of people back when this play came out were, you know, this is a Malvolio play. It's all about him. It's not about as much about the four, you know, the four romantic leads.
1: Definitely answers that question of how do people like Malvolio this much? It's like, well, you got this like very funny contrast mm-hmm. in a character. This Maybe this like moment of reveal if you didn't catch on. Mm-hmm. And then you get this like audience participation.
0: And it kind of explains why nothing really gets resolved with Malvolio. You know, Olivia doesn't really choose to do anything. No one on stage really chooses to do anything. And because if. Because there's this other
1: character of the audience. Because there's this other
0: character of the audience. Yeah. So perhaps the reason why that moment feels like, you know, Olivia says make good with them or how, you know, deal with it with them directly, nothing really gets solved. He goes off and, you know, says he's going to get back at everybody. And it's.
1: Yeah. Because probably it's like based on the audience reaction, mm-hmm. like, well. Yeah. Go do that then. hmm. Yeah. And I love how it. In Malvolio, we get both the plays for the court and, like, the four humors. And that's, Mm -hmm. like, if you haven't listened to those episodes, like,
0: go listen to them. Go listen to them. Again, it's something that wouldn't be in the consciousness of a modern... Today's audience. today's audience.
1: But knowing it, if you're in a position where you're going to be playing Malvolio or directing a production of Twelfth Night, what a great thing to know ahead of time that, like... Malvolio is a fake and a phony, and mm-hmm. uh, like he's not a pure innocent who gets tricked because they just don't like him. If, this is somebody whose true nature is revealed because people set a trap for him to yeah. fall into. Mm-hmm. Then that the audience gets to decide what is coming to, to him. him. Yeah, is something that like you could bring you could bring both of those things into a modern production. The audience isn't necessarily going to understand, you know, why mm-hmm. they're happening. But you could make those choices, and I think that those could be very easily done today. Yeah. Done still today.
0: And there are companies that try to do interactive performances where, you know, tweet at us or do whatever. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm a giant fan of them, but this could be a play where you could actually realistically have audience participation in some new media kind of way. Because Mm -hmm. originally, this might have been a section where Malvolio was actually pleading to the audience rather than to Olivia, for redemption,
1: yeah, yeah, or even just like cheers and booze, you know,
0: like mm-hmm. yeah, that's true.
1: Based on audience applause, like mm-hmm. what happens to Malvolio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very historical episode <laughs> this time that I didn't think like when we chose comedic tropes, I didn't think it was going to be this dense with history. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I was like, oh yeah, we're gonna talk about like comedy, comedy. But it's interesting to see how like theatrical traditions that existed influenced the tropes that are present in play. As well as the pop culture. There's a lot of pop culture tropes Mm -hmm. that were brought in. And again, because like comedy is never completely rewritten, it's just adapted for the modern audience. Mm -hmm. You know, we still see situations and characters like this today, Mm -hmm. and it's still funny.
0: And it might explain why certain plot points and tropes that are not necessarily comedic on the surface to a modern audience are in this play. Because it doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense why grief and mourning and this prank and humiliation of Malvolio are in this play. But from the context of what was going on in Shakespeare's time, that might explain it a bit more.
1: These might have been really hilarious.
0: Yeah. Very fascinating.
1: You know, that's also like why tropes are tropes is that we keep,
0: keep on using reusing them. them. If it's not broke, don't fix it.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's leave that there. Great. Thanks for listening.
0: I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare
1: Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it.
0: You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon
1: patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode
0: description. For more, you can visit our website shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number One. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because
1: you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare
0: quote for you. From King Henry VI, Part 2, Act 1, Scene 1, spoken by York. Then York, be still a while till time do serve. Watch thou and wake when others be asleep, to pry into the secrets of the state till Henry, surfeiting in joys of love, with his new bride, and England's dear-bought queen, and Humphrey, with the peers befallen at jars, then will I raise aloft the milk-white rose, with whose sweet smell the air shall be perfumed, and in my standard bear the arms of York, to grapple with the house of Lancaster, and force perforce, I'll make him yield the crown, whose bookish rule hath pulled fair England down.